Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now on the New Culture Forum we talk about history an awful lot. Over the past few weeks we've had David Starkey on and Andrew Roberts. Uh, that's because people love it and also because it's one of the great subjects which seems to be popular generally uh, on the internet. So I'm delighted that today my guest is Simon Webb. Simon is host of History Debunked. Uh, it's a channel which, uh, despite being relatively new, has got something like 20 million views behind it and 100,000 subscribers. So, well, first of all, congratulations on that. Simon. Thank you. Thank, um, it's great to see you. Uh, History Debunked, we're living in a time where everyone around us apparently seems to be wanting to debunk some history. What, what, what is the, what's the mission behind your channel? The mission is really simple. I've written um, quite a few books on history, particularly little-known aspects of history, the things that people don't realise to do with um, the First and Second World War, the Victorian period. And when I started the channel, that was the purpose, to look at those things. Gradually, though, I became interested in the way that history is being slanted to make Britain look like a multicultural country from thousands of years ago. Right. And this is not only being done academically, this is also being done in popular culture. So um, you might have heard of a television series called Bridgerton. Yeah, yeah, on yes, Netflix. Yes, yes. The Queen of England there was uh, shown to be black, and which is really grotesque, but that's been a view that's been propagated by the mainstream press. Mm. So I wanted to look at that and see why it was being done and how it was being done. Well, why do you think it's being done? I mean, is this because, is this, uh, I mean, this is the sort of thing we hear about a lot of times. I mean, like whether it's in advertisements on TV or, for example, uh, with uh, the series about Anne Boleyn recently. Um, is it to try to convince people that this twas ever thus? Is that what you're saying? I think it is, and it's partly because it's fashionable. People uh, get, in, get the idea into their heads that if they're making an historical series, they had better throw in some people of colour. Otherwise, it, they're going to have trouble getting advertisers and funding. Do you see that yeah. um, a lot of time now, if you want to get funding for something, a lot of television programmes have got some sort of funding or backing, there are diversity uh, policies that have to be complied with. So they have to have a certain number of black actors and a certain number of Indian actors. And so it naturally comes about that they work them in. Yes, it's, it, it, in fact, I think it's actually in the rules, as you say, like the BAFTA rules, that when it comes to being nominated for awards, you have to have shown a certain level of diversity, either in front of or behind That's the right. camera. But the problem, surely, with this is, like you said, Bridgerton, and I watched a bit of Bridgerton, um, is that, in fact, by giving a, a, a the wrong impression, it sort of, it doesn't maybe help, uh, if you like, uh, the multicultural lobby, in the sense that, you know, if you have mixed-race couples walking about in Regency London, which could, was not the case, um, some people will look at it and say, well, what are you complaining about? It, it was always like... It erases racism. Yes, The exactly. same thing happened with the new adaptation of the H.E. Bates novels, The yes. Darling Buds of Spring. In those, you have a tax inspector who's black, you have a pub landlord who's black. 
the village school teacher is black, all in a little rural community in Kent in the 1950s. <laughs> I remember the 1950s. A black person would have would A, have stuck out like a sore thumb, and B, you've been made very unwelcome. Yes. And yet there's no racism shown. Everybody is shown getting on as well as they would today. Well, that, yes, exactly. So that is actually a lie, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's in a way, it, it's sort of, it's, it's not actually telling the truth, and, and there's a, there are two different ways of looking at that. Um, you said that the, you started off looking at various uh, issues in history, but this has become, in other words, more political for you. Yes. It right. has become more political because the more I see it happening, the more irritating I find it and the more that I find that people are unable to speak about it for fear of being called racist, even raising a topic, even asking about advertisements and why all advertisements have to feature mixed race couples, which they nearly all do these days. Yeah. Even asking that question will get people looking at you as though you're, there's something suspicious about you, as though you're a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist. And do you get that? Of course, yes, yeah. I do get it. Yeah, yeah I've had death threats by email and mm. all sorts of things. Yes. There are some people on my channel who complain about every video I make every single day. I usually put up two videos a day right. and I've seen some of the commenters there boasting on um, Twitter that they complain to YouTube about every single video as a matter of principle. And what do YouTube do vis-a-vis -vis you? I mean, have they, they done... They me. Uh, yeah. They suspend me for a week or two weeks. Right. I and see. if you get three strikes in three months, they simply terminate the channel and that's the end of it. Right. Yes, it's right. Three strikes and you're out. Or that's it. Like and you're that. permanently banned then yeah, from yeah. YouTube. When you started this, which was, what, 18 months ago, yes. you said? Uh, did you, were you surprised? How, how, are you surprised how it's taken off? Yes. I thought it was a fairly obscure idea. I didn't think most people were interested because you seldom see debate about this in newspapers. People don't even like to talk about it in public on trains in case someone takes offence. I was surprised that once I started discussing it and putting it on YouTube, so many people were interested in talking about it. Mm. Um, and and is it? It's fair to say that basically now this is your this is your main modus operandi, I, uh, uh, the political side of it. I mean, do you, or do you still do subjects that are not really anything to do with? Racism? I do from time to time, yes, but I have to say in the main it is political. It's looking at today's society and seeing how history. You could say that it, it's keeping to the theme of history debunked because the history that we're seeing now increasingly is not true, it's not factual. The history that's being projected, uh, we're being told, for example, that there was a black Roman emperor and that he died in Britain and that there were black soldiers, state Roman soldiers in Britain. That's completely untrue, yes. it's absolute nonsense, but it's being put into children's books and it's being taught at school. Mm -hmm. um, which why did you get interested in history anyway? I mean, you say you've written before. I mean, uh -huh. was this something you've had since you were growing up? Or? Yes. I mean, I've written for magazines and newspapers, but the writing of the books only started a few years ago. I say a few years ago, perhaps 10 or 11 years ago. It started with education. I, I, I'm a home educator. I didn't send my daughter to school at all. And I wrote a book about that. And so uh, what, they, you, you homeschooled your daughters? I don't, yeah, my daughter didn't go to school at all. Really? And, and the reason was for these reasons? or uh, No, no, the reason was that I didn't see the point in sending her to school. 
I knew that I would be able to teach her more effectively. You know, um, one-to-one tuition in a relaxed domestic setting is far more efficient than having 30 children in a class taught by one person. So I knew that it would be more efficient if I did it myself. Oh, I see. So it wasn't a political thing? No, it was simply I wanted her to have a good education. Right. And, oh, oh, and so what about your interest in history? Was that self-taught or...? Largely self-taught, yes, but also inspired by the difference is um, a rather a dislocation between what you see people saying in real life, people reminiscing, say, about the First World War, and what you read in history books. So my grandfather uh, fought in the First World War through all the great battles, and I remember he was a huge fan of Haig, you know, Field Marshal Haig. Every Remembrance Day, he had Haig's picture up on the mantelpiece. And that's really the, how a lot of old soldiers viewed Haig. Yeah. And yet, if you look at history books and talk to people today, the impression is that Haig was a, a callous butcher. Mm. So there's a difference between the history that ordinary people experience mm. and the history as it is written by upper middle class people and academics. So where is the debunking there then? I mean, you know, you know, were, are you, were you saying, you talk about Haig, for example, hmm. in your time, are uh, you saying he was actually a, a good guy? Or is that, and the debunking is that he's been taught as a bad guy? Sure. In the schools today, in the secondary schools, they use clips of Blackadder to teach First World War history, which is grotesque. Mm. And so the, the view that the children are being indoctrinated with is the view of a left-wing comedian. Yeah. But Haig himself was a decent soldier. The Somme, far from being a disaster, was a turning point in the First World War. It was what um, one German general described as the muddy grave of the German field army. As far as the Germans were concerned, it was a disaster for them. Yeah. And from the Somme onward, from 1916, Britain was almost bound to win. Uh, something that happened after the First World War, which I noticed when I was looking through your site, which I found fascinating, was about 1919, I think you call it Britain's unspoken revolution, or could you tell us about that? I mean, that, that's yes, the certainly. sort of thing that, you know, we don't know about, really. Well, firstly, the reason we don't know about it is because things that happened just before or just after a world war tend to be neglected. A world war is such an immense event that we tend to lose track of things that happened near, near to it, if you see what I mean. So 1919 was really a continuation of the industrial unrest that took place before the First World War. 1911 was known as the, the Great Unrest mm. because there was so much industrial action, troops were uh, called in, troops killed people in Welsh, Welsh mining towns at that time. And so Britain was simmering on the brink of a great change before the outbreak of war in 1914. There was quite a bit of anarchism as well, wasn't there? Yes, there was, yes. The, the, the anarchists were uh, involved very heavily. After the First World War, there were two strands to this. The first strand was that the British Army didn't demobilise troops immediately. They didn't want to have a lot of demobilised soldiers, some of them without jobs, milling around the streets. It was a recipe for anarchy and disorder. So instead, they sent them off to fight in Russia mm. and kept them in camps in uh, France. They weren't being demobilised. That led to a lot of mutinies in the army, which meant that the British government couldn't rely upon the army. And that's an absolute disaster. I mean, this, the 
Russian Revolution, the moment in which it became certain that it was all over with the Romanov dynasty, was when the army wouldn't obey orders. And in yeah. Britain, the same thing was looking as though it would happen. Troops weren't obeying orders and they were mutinying. Really? So that made a very dangerous situation. Then you had the Triple Alliance of the rail workers and the miners and the transport people. They were threatening a strike. So they needed troops to prevent that. It was a very... The whole of Europe was in a revolutionary fervour. There was even uh, talk of a revolution in Switzerland. There were armoured cars patrolling the streets of Zurich. Mm. We, f we forget this. We forget that there were a lot of... Russia wasn't the only Soviet republic that was set up. There were Soviet republics were set up in Hungary. Um, Germany actually had a revolution that mm. no one ever talks about now. Mm. So it was a fairly dicey time for Britain. And there were these sort of... Uh in Liverpool, battleships and stuff? Yes, yeah. that's right. They, because they used troops in Liverpool to combat some writing. The police went on strike. And every yeah. time you have a police strike, inevitably there is looting and trouble. It, it happened more recently in Canada in the 1960s. There was a police strike. The army weren't able to restore order. There were some army units called in and they were staged bayonet charges, they opened fire, people were killed, and it simply wasn't working. So the um, government called in two warships from Scarpa Flow and brought them to the harbour, and they were in the harbour with their guns trained on Liverpool as a sign, you know, a bit of sabre rattling, to show people that if need be, the government were prepared to shell the city. How Bolshevik was it, you know, you know, in terms of what was behind. Um, I'm not at all sure it was Bolshevik. The, some of the main people, the agitators, were the British Legion, you know, the ex-servicemen's mm, organisations, mm. because they came home when they were demobilised, finally. They thought they were going to be treated as heroes. Mm, they um, mm. thought that they would be getting a, a different sort of life, and it was obvious that they weren't going to. Mm. And so that caused a huge amount of discontent. The thing is that when, when you describe that situation, um, I would say that that is obviously something not popularly really known. Sure. And, and also it would sort of tend to go against, you know, the kind of, would you call it the weak view of history or whatever, that we've been remarkably uh, civically unviolent as a country, all of this. Um, and the things have just evolved and we've a good relationship with the police and all of that. So one could say that that debunking is, is actually quite a left-wing thing. I mean, would you, can you see what I mean? I see exactly what you mean. But then, <clears throat> I suppose I don't really think in terms very often of left-wing or right-wing. Um, when I was invited to come here, I didn't think, oh gosh, this is a right-wing place yeah. that I'm going to. I tend to look at things and then ask myself what seems sensible, what seems yeah. right to me and accurate. Yeah. Yes. So you don't, you say you don't have a particular political, you don't, you don't have a party or anything like that, no? <laughs> Not no. I suspect no. you've got a, a, a healthy scepticism about the whole party thing, have you? <laughs> I wouldn't trust the Prime Minister to look after my house for the weekend. But having said that, I wouldn't let Kish Starmer near my possessions either, because yes, no. I, don't, I don't trust any of them. No. Um, History obviously is right to the fore at the moment, all the statue business and everything. Sure. Um, again, you know, I was last year horrified by what I saw as this. 
toppling of statues and defacing of memorials and everything. But would you say as well that this has happened regularly throughout history? Or yeah, not? of course. In this, this country? Yes. Not quite so much. I mean, there's been iconoclasm. You think of the Reformation, a lot of statues <coughs> and images of saints were smashed up. Then it happens from time to time. Less often in this country, probably, but it has happened. Mm. Um, but what is your... What would your solution be to this problem of now history basically being taught to kids through a very particular lens, which you've already mentioned. How would you deal with that? It's an extraordinarily difficult question mm. to ask because an awful lot of teachers do tend to be a bit left-wing and... Um, a bit? Y y well, quite. So even if we were to draw up an entirely new curriculum, they would find ways to frustrate it. They would find ways of not teaching it. And I've seen this happen. I used to teach at one time. I know a lot of teachers still, and if they're given orders to do a certain thing, they will simply avoid doing it, and the union will cut up rough. Yeah. So it, it, it's a problem. I suppose you'd have to start with training teachers in a different way. So mm. this would take a generation. Yes, uh, well, we've done some work on, on that at the in New Culture Forum, and it does, you know, it's the teacher training side of things. I remember Lord Pearson saying that back in the 80s, when he looked into it, um, there was this attempt to drench the syllabus in gender, race, and and class, actually, at that point. That seems to have gone now. Mm. Um, but here we are, what, a generation later, two generations later, and indeed those are the things of which are drenching every sort of, not just history, it's sort of other science. It and seeps in everywhere. It seeps yes, in everywhere. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yes. Um, I mean, do you... When you uh, do, you feel uh, a sense of foreboding about the future as someone who's interested in history, on, or do you not see it that way? Well, I have. There's two points here. Firstly, I'm no longer a young man. I'm going to die relatively soon. Um, speaking of a wide span of things, so it probably won't affect me all that much. Right. But yes, thinking of the future now, I, I'm not particularly optimistic about the future of young people mm. because unless they are taught facts unless they learn the reality and real things they're going to be in a bit of a pickle in yes. their lives well the point is surely isn't it that it's just like a human being if you don't know what you were before how can you possibly live in the future how, how can you be ready for things in the future if you have no idea of what you are. It's the same for a country, isn't it? It's the same for the country, but for children it's absolutely catastrophic because it cuts them off from a whole lot of British culture and a whole lot of mm. high culture. I'll give an example. I'm a great fan of um, Anthony Trollope mm. and Dickens too, come to that. Now, in some of those books, the whole point, uh, Dr Thorne by Trollope and Bleak House by Dickens, all both centre around women who are illegitimate. And it's a huge scandal. They're set in Victorian England and illegitimacy was an enormous scandal then. And the whole, the themes of the book, the plots hinge around it. No young person today, unless they've studied history, will be able to make any sense of either of no. those books. No. <clears throat> if they, unless they've got a proper grounding in history, they'll read those books and they won't understand what on earth is going on. Mm. Because of course illegitimacy today, it's 
nothing at all. It's, it's the rule rather than the exception. So in that way, not being familiar or acquainted with history is going to prevent them from being able to appreciate great literature. Just to give one example. The problem is, I would say, is that the great literature is itself under attack. It is. Um, I mean, during last year's, uh, you know, riots and, and, and disturbances, uh, someone had a go at Dickens's house down in Broadstead, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, I think they just put graffiti on it. In fact, that's what they did. Sure. But, I mean, essentially, we talk about history, but yes, uh, you're hearing, for example, of uh, European classical composers of, of, of the stature I would call, you know, geniuses, you know, people like Mozart and Beethoven, mm. gradually being undermined, um, same with literature. This is a cultural-wide thing, is it not? Yeah, it's an attack on high culture, which is partly based, it's partly racism, it's partly also class, because the idea is that working-class children and ethnic minorities should be given something other than high culture, that yes. high culture is predominantly white and male, and so we'll have to do away with that. But it actually used to be, before this became the emphasis, because I, I remember discussing it a huge amount, like 20 years or so ago, it, it became, oh, well, we can't expect those people to like this, so we've just basically got to teach this form of music, pop music or something like that. You can't expect them. Whereas when I was at school, which was an ordinary primary school, I remember us being taken along to the festival hall. That's right. And okay, it would just see the nutcracker or something like mm. that. But essentially, the point was that you, you could make your mind up. No yeah. one was forcing you. But it seems to me that, that they, they, it's assumed now that this, this is, forget it, there's no hope in that. It is assumed. That's absolutely correct. The idea at one time, certainly when I was a child at school, the idea was to try and draw children up, especially yeah. I come from Despite how I speak, I come from a very working-class background. <clears throat> I went to um, a very working-class school. Where was this, sorry, uh, Simon? Where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Custom House. Oh, in the East End? Yes. Oh, right, OK. So, That's you know, changed a bit. <laughs> you may well say so. <clears throat> but now the emphasis seems to be on going down. The emphasis seems to be in catering for the lowest thing. So, mm. whereas in music classes when I was young, they might have tried to get people to appreciate classical music. Today, it's got to be just pop music or African drumming, mm. rather n nothing that smacks of high culture wishes to be uh, used. Yes, I think in before, I think now it might well be, oh, because this is seen as Eurocentric and white and everything. But I think before, it, it, it was a form of kind of elitism in an odd way. You can't be expected to. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> That's a big turnaround, isn't it? It is, yes. Do you, so you, 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 were, you grew up in Custom House. When did you leave London? Uh, I was born in Custom House. I've I, I lived in all sorts of different places. I, I lived in Israel for some years. I, I've moved about a lot in my life. <clears throat> I was born in Custom House and then I grew up in East London, yeah, another part of East London. Yes. And, uh, you know, because uh, I'm a Londoner as well, uh, and uh, a lot of people are now leaving London, a huge amount of people are leaving That's, London. Well, yes, you say that, but the population is soaring. 30 years ago, the population of Greater London was just under 7 million, today it's 9 million. 9 million. So, yes, 2 million more people have come, 
but an awful lot of people have left, mm, so, mm. which accounts, I mean, you can see it on the streets. It's no secret that this is a product of immigration. Mm. Nearly all the immigrants that come to this country want to live in southeast England, particularly London. Yeah. And there's a big fuss if attempts are being made to um, send some Afghan immigrants to parts of Wales and Scotland and they're being resisted furiously because yeah. those people want to live in London. Yes, yes. Uh, well, you can sort of see why they would want it. I mean, you know, because you can... I don't blame them at all for wanting it, but it's the same reason before I li I've lived in um, the Epping Forest District for a little over 20 years. Before that, I was living in Tottenham. But Tottenham became such a place that it was not a safe environment mm. and it wasn't a pleasant environment. Mm. And so we moved out into um, Essex. And mm. yes, that's, it's known in America as the white flight, obviously, mm. and you'd see a lot of it in London. Actually, when you, you mention America there, there's this whole 1619 project, isn't there, which is, <clears throat> just in case anyone... It's basically an attempt to essentially delegitimize the founding fathers, isn't it? And to, yeah. and to make the foundation date of America's when the first slaves came, I think. That's right, yeah. And this, but this is sort of, this seems to have, are you surprised as someone who, you know, loves history at the speed with which this has happened, say like in America, it, so quickly, this kind of turnaround? Yeah, I am slightly surprised at it. But sometimes once the ball gets rolling, things happen really, really quickly. Mm. And things do become fashionable. You know, fashions change in history and culture just as they do in everything else. And at the moment, the fashion is very much to emphasise ethnic minorities, to emphasise black and brown people, and to try and, if possible, neglect white people. Mm. It's, it's just how things are. It might change again. What, what is the kind of, I suppose... You know, what is the sort of reaction of your... You have obviously very loyal viewers, yes. right? Uh, what do you think they get out of your broadcasts? I'm saying what they think, but dare not say. Mm. I'm saying the sort of things that they wouldn't even say probably... In fact, I know this, that they wouldn't say in public on a bus or a train because they were, they were afraid that people would either call them racist or they might be... a abused or assaulted for saying mm, so mm. so i'm giving a voice to white people in particular white working class people who feel that they cannot speak their minds that they can't they can't say what they are thinking and mm. i'm i've often told this by people that you know people that get in touch with me that aren't wanting me to be shot i'm told that they are grateful because i'm giving them a voice yes yes hey. Are you a nostalgic man or not? Or, I mean, because I had this conversation recently with someone else, uh, but basically there we are always, you know, people who tend to talk about the past, they're always sort of, you know, tarp with this brush of somehow or other, you know, they're nostalgic for another time. Or, but, but would you say you are a kind of, you live in the present? I mean, even though you've got views about the present, that you, you live in the present? Of course I live in the present. I've, I've, well, no, I've, some people don't. Well, I, I, I don't think that the past, <clears throat> certainly, you know, if you look back 60 or 70 years, was particularly brilliant. You know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to have colour televisions in your own home. It's wonderful to be able to carry a colour television around and have unlimited access to any knowledge in the world just by tapping a few keys. I think that the present is a brilliant place, but it's not perfect. No, so no, no. I can see things that are wrong and things that were better in the past. But no, I'm not nostalgic for the past. 
You uh, will you carry on doing the channel as it stands, or are there any new things you're thinking of doing, plans for it? Uh, well, okay. The thing is, I've written a book. I got a grant from an American think tank, the uh, Conroe Foundation, to enable me to write a book about race and. Um, how ideology rather than science now dictates um, our ideas on race. That book is going to be published in PDF format. And we're just going to give it away to people. Mm -hmm. So I'll probably be setting up a website to distribute that book. This isn't, it's not being done through a publisher at all. This is being done entirely mm. as a private enterprise, both by the Conroe Foundation and me. So we'll be distributing that book. And it's quite a long way, it's 115,000 words, and it's fully referenced. Right, so okay. It's quite a hefty volume. Are you finished? Right, right. It's finished, it's all ready to go. So, yes, that will be the next project. Okay, right. Well, look, Simon, thank you very much for telling us all about the channel. Um, and uh, you don't do interviews on Noel, do you, on yours, or do you? Well, as I say, I only have a, a little flip video, mini video camera right. from about a hundred years ago. So no, unless someone wants to come into my house and take it in turns to put their head in front of the screen, <laughs> it's not possible. Oh, well, you know, it, has, it sounds like a way. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank I've you really all. enjoyed it. Thank all, you. All, all the very best to you. Uh, that's it for So what you're saying is this week, um, we shall see you next time. Thank you very much.